Hey everyone, this is Lucas Banyo, an investor at Village Global, and I'm here with my co-host Ian Cinnamon. Welcome to SolarPunk. In this podcast, we cover topics related to space and defense and discuss how technology can contribute to a better and safer world. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Village Global SolarPunk. As all of our regular listeners know, here at SolarPunk, we spend a lot of time talking about the aerospace and defense industries. And today, we're really excited to welcome a co-worker of ours here at Village, Eric Torenberg. Eric has spent a ton of time thinking about how startups can help save the world and how to grow the startup economy. And we're really excited to have a conversation with Eric today as to how startups relate to those industries and how they can help us build a better and safer world. Eric is a co-founder and general partner here at Village Global, and also a co-founder and co-CEO at OnDeck. Before that, Eric was on the founding team at Product Hunt, and through Village and OnDeck, he's focused on growing the startup economy. Now, onto the show. It's great to be here. Awesome. Well, uh, you're a very familiar face to us, so uh, we're, we're really excited to have the opportunity to have this conversation. And part of the reason why we, we want to do this is because we spend a lot of time, Ian and I, talking about space and defense and why these things matter. And you have talked a ton about why you know startups can save the world. So I think there is a very important link uh, between those two. So I was hoping maybe you could, we could start off by commenting on your investment thesis. How do you look about the startup economy, the role that startups play in the world in you know, growing the startup economy? Yeah, that's a great, great question, Lucas. As, the, as, as we all know, and as, as the listeners know, you know, Village invests across sectors, across every sector, but, and is network-driven. But to the extent that you know, there are things that I'm excited about or, or, or ways of explaining some, some of our investments, Startups are Saving the World is, is, a, is one way of looking at it. You know, over the past few decades, we've realized that, that startups are the most effective orgs at creating new technologies for, for some of our biggest problems, whether it's you know, space and SpaceX, whether it's electric vehicles and Tesla, whether it's uh, Andrew doing for defense, as you've covered. Uh, and, and we at Village are investing in startups that do that, right? Uh, whether it's applied intuition for autonomous vehicles, whether it's living carbon for, for climate, whether it's loyal and spring discovery for longevity, whether it's first resonance in Hadrian for manufacturing and some of the startups that you, you've featured on, on, on the show that, that, we, that we've backed, um, startups that are trying to bend the cost curves in healthcare, education, and housing, something we'll, we'll talk about later. So startups saving the world, I think of as one, one thesis. Um, and another thesis related to that is, is startups are, are saving the world. Well, then startups that help create more startups, i.e. startups that help grow the startup economy, um, also ha- have, a, have a big impact, right? Startups create uh, jobs dis- disproportionately, uh, st- startups disproportionately contribute to economic growth, which we'll also talk about. Uh, and, and there's no natural rate limiter on the amount of successful startups. The, the amount of startups is just limited by the amount of capital, founders, and, and good ideas. So if, if you want more startups, you can either increase the, increase the inputs uh, or you can accelerate the, the, the matching, the, the effectiveness by which you know, founders, capital, and ideas find each other. And, and we have a few companies that, that do that, right? Uh, that, that's what OnDeck does, which I, which I helped start. OnDeck, you know, we say we're trying to organize the world's ambition, i.e. accelerate the rate at which ideas, talent, and capital can find each other, uh, remove bottlenecks for people to start companies, right? What are those bottlenecks? It's finding a co-founder, getting the right idea, raising money, but also things like, you know, people have healthcare challenges or they have immigration challenges. And so OnDeck does that by programs that help people start companies, join companies, and get better at their jobs. 
But then we have companies like Eighteen, right, that helps match talent, create teams for hire, so so more startups can get built. But then also startups like Pave that helps make compensation more efficient, which is important to startups and employees. So so the broad thesis are startups and save the world, and and startups help create more startups. So. Given all of the variables that go into starting a company, one of them that you briefly touched on is capital. And obviously, where we are right now is markets are down. Uh, there's a lot of doom and gloom out there. How do you think that affects the number of startups being created? Does that affect the inputs? How should founders think about that? Yeah, absolutely. So there's the, you know, the inputs are, are startups, capital, ideas, customers, and in an environment where there's you know, less capital there, there that that's that's going to affect the the amount of startups. The the other thing that's related to it is the is the effectiveness by which they match. Um, and so I'm excited to see you know fundraising marketplaces is still an unsolved problem. You know how many times do <laughs> do we see on Twitter who's the best investor for SaaS for space who invests in this you know etc. Like you'd think as an industry we would have solved this this problem by now, but uh, but we haven't. But if, if all founders knew. You know, had a better sense for like how many times are we helping founders with their invest investor lists, and yet how, how redundant is that process? So I'm excited for us as an industry to figure out how to better match um, founders and and investors. Uh, and um, and in terms of how founders should think about it, well, I think you know we've seen in the Series A and Series B stage a correction in, in valuation that's that's really significant, and we haven't yet seen it for, for seed and pre-seed to the same degree. And I think it just takes a little bit of, um, you know, swallowing the bitter pill of like, hey, it's a different market out there. And so have, have, have different expectations, otherwise the round might not get done. And, and that's that's what we're advising a, a lot of our companies right now. And that, that could change, but there's a question as to, you know, is this the anomaly or was the last two years where and a lot of our founders are first-time founders. A lot of founders are first-time founders. Uh, they've only you know started companies in an environment where m- maybe that was the anomaly. So, so that's also something to consider. So a fair number of the companies that we profile or talk about on the SolarPunk series end up being fairly high capital-intensive companies. Now, not all of them, right? We have a lot of great companies that are purely software-based, low capex, etc. But for the founders thinking of that high capex environment, who might be in the early stages, do you think that's going through a correction too, or how should those founders uh, be thinking about the world they're in? Should they be indexing more on low capex intensive ideas? That's a great question. I, I think you know you, you you want to have founder market fit, right? So you want to, uh, if you're a founder, you want to work on a company or a product that you are more likely to have an, an advantage doing so. And so for these deep tech um, startups. You know the advantages are deep expertise, you know, um, uh, like vertical specific expertise, and an ability to raise capital. And and what is ability to raise capital? You're you're well known by other investors. You're pedigreed, uh, et cetera. You have some capital of your own. And so yeah, if, if you don't have deep expert deep expertise or um, you know an ability to r- raise capital. Uh, go to Web three, my friend. Uh, I'm just teasing. Um, I, I don't, I don't want to dissuade anyone from from um, from going out to, to start a company. That, that that's what we do. But um, it might be a bit harder than it was uh, two years ago. Um, now maybe that means you go work at Hadrian for for a year or two years, or you know build up that that Air Force Residence or Andrew or whatever, build up that that credibility and respect. Or and at the same time, to argue against myself, you know we now have uh, American dynamism as an industry, right? Um, Catherine, you know, started the first practice A16Z, but there, you know, lots of other 
uh, you know, firms are calling it different things. And so maybe there's more capital in the space uh, than there was two years ago, even though there's less capital uh, overall. I, I think in terms of the uh, o- o- overall impact, I mean, founders should um, do what they're meant to do. Uh, and and they should not let the market determine whether they are or not going to be successful if they're just starting a company because that market could change in six to 12 months. Right. And, and then, Eric, so you, you mentioned Catherine in, in American dynamism and something that she talked about when we had her on the show is how, you know, the, the world's best talent is no longer working for the government. That is something that happened back in 1950. Why are startups saving the world and not the government? You know, what happened and what's this future that, that we're headed towards? Well, it's important to realize that that startups and government work together, right? Um, and then it's the question is, what what is the role of government? Well, at the very minimum, um, government creates a level playing field by which businesses can operate in a trusted environment, right? Hernando de Soto wrote, wrote about, you know, what makes the U.S. and other developed nations unique is that they have value of, uh, you know, property rights, uh, you know, rule of law, low corruption. And, and, you know, Lucas, you're, you're from Brazil, obviously you like, we, we know, and I'm, you know, my mom's Colombian, like we know what it's like to be in regions that, that don't have the same business friendly environment. So at, at the very minimum, government has to provide a business friendly environment. And we take that for granted here. Uh, we take that for granted in ways that other immigrants don't, but at the same time, it's very true that, you know, I said startups are, are saving the world. Or startups are, are the ones innovating where, you know, from in the mid 20th century, um, government innovated, right? The Hoover Dam, the Manhattan Project, the, the moon landing. And so why isn't that the case today? Well, I would argue that there are structural reasons uh, why startups will just outperform. Uh, one is that startups have competition. They have market accountability. They're forged in the evolutionary Petri dish where tons of players are trying to innovate, the best one wins, all the others fail, and then go do something else. Whereas governments are, you know, by, by nature, like don't have competition. And, you know, areas that don't have competition, they're called monopolies. And monopolies don't innovate because they don't have to. There's no check. There's no accountability. There's no evolutionary process. And, and so this is why we see, you know, a lack of innovation. And, and when we, you know, areas that are totally dominated by the government, like how, uh, housing and healthcare and education, prices skyrocket, right? So, so one is the structural incentive of competition. The other structural incentive is incentives. If you, you know, if you start a company and you, you know, if, if Hadrian is the next big thing, you know, uh, the whole team gets rich. Whereas sometimes public organizations or nonprofits, sometimes, you know, certainly they don't get rich, but sometimes they even have the perverse incentive, which is if, if they, um, if they solve their problem that they, that the org has been you know, created to build, their organ- organization is no longer needed. And so they have this perverse incentive to preserve the problem for which they are paid to be the theoretical solution. So there are structural incentives and th- those structural incentives have led to this huge talent gap, right? In, in, you know, the best people used to serve in government. And then in the seventies, we had venture capital and private equity emerge, which meant people can get richer sooner in their career. But then more broadly, and this last thing I'll say about it is, you know, as organizations that, that have no sort of accountability, like public organizations, they become uh, a, what someone called a vitocracy. There, there's there's too much regulation. We're, we're not allowed to, to develop, you know, let's say, for example, new drugs with the FDA because it costs a billion dollars the drug. We're not allowed to fly supersonic jets because they're too noisy. We're not allowed to build nuclear power plants. We've outlawed too, too many things, and so people want to want to grow where they can where they can build freely and and make money for doing so. And this is Peter Thiel's argument for why we've had innovation in um, bits and and not atoms. There's been too much regulation. Eric, so at the same time, while I hear you, there you're 
somewhat painting a picture of, you know, it's almost startups versus the vir- government who's innovating more. How is that pushing forward? What about all of the um, uh, billions or tens of billions of dollars or more that flow from the government into startups to whether it be uh, cyber grants or different vehicles to help these startups get off the floor and be that initial source of capital? How do you view companies that are uh, trying to utilize that? And what's your take on how that's enabling uh, the future of innovation? I, I think that is critical, and, and Elon and many others have have benefited tremendously from that, and, and perhaps couldn't exist, uh, you know, separate from that. It's worth understanding that all the money that goes into government is taken from companies, <laughs> or is taken from private individuals. So it's it's not like the government is like creating that money out of thin air, whereas private companies actually are to some extent. And so, yes, if you're saying, hey. Um, should we take tax dollars and give it back to these these companies? Uh, yes, I, I think I think that's great. And and you know the question I'd have is how much waste, like what percent of the, those tax dollars actually goes to those companies, and how how can we increase that? And I, I think that's one problem. Whereas like what, this is why people don't appreciate some of these um, bigger companies that contribute so much to the tax space, or these people, these billionaires that contribute so much to the tax space, is because they don't realize that when when money in, you know in the form of services or, or you know as we saw during covid like literal money uh, we we think that like government owns that money when really they they're just redistributing it and 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 the question or the challenge is how do we have as minimal waste a, 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 along the way right there's there's this um, charity called give directly that uh, they say hey we're going to take your money and we're just going to give it straight to um to you know uh, someone who in need and we're going to have as minimal you know waste in that as possible and i would love the same if 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 we knew our we have no idea where tax dollars go right but if we knew that they were going to like SpaceX or Tesla like directly or as much as possible even or or things that are you know whether it's house care uh, housing or healthcare education that would be um that'd be amazing so i think we're all in agreement that we want more efficient use of our tax dollars and uh you know i'm with you i of course would love to pay less taxes um and see it be used a lot better however i do want to push you on the point that uh, the government funding is simply kind of redirecting that money. So you mentioned uh, Elon and SpaceX as one example. To my understanding, it wasn't just the initial capital uh, that the government provided that enabled SpaceX. It was the fact that the government was SpaceX's initial customer. So if you're building a rocket company, no commercial company, no uh, private, you know, telecom satellite company is going to say, great, let me strap my $100 million satellite on your rocket that has never flown before and may or may not work. Where the US government and the US Space Force or Air Force at the time would go to SpaceX and Elon and say, look, we know this is important for innovation. We will pay you so that we could be a customer of yours. So it's not just a, you know, it's not just the redirecting of the tax money. It's almost more of saying the government's willing to be that initial customer in order to get you to commercial viability. Yeah, you know, a hundred percent. And and so to rephrase, sort of like if one asks, what, what's what's the role of government in terms of helping these companies? So one, it's it's we talked about the the rule of law, property rights, that kind of stuff we take for granted. But two, we talked about capital source, um, and then three, uh, being a customer, being a buyer. And and being willing to take risks in in working with startups and not just the the big incumbents that that sort of you know are prone to regulatory capture right and so that that as a huge opportunities for 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 government to to stay involved and and one thing I like to say also is like their their private companies in in some ways should take um, direction from how government should should operate in theory whereas like private companies should be um, you know more long term oriented 
Should, um, you know, this is why, you know, we talk about Web3 a lot, but one of the things that I'm, I'm really excited about Web3 is, is expanded ownership and expanded participation, right? And this is what public organizations are, you know, in theory are all about, which is, um, you know, the users are shareholders too. And, and so, um, yes, government plays a, a critical role. And I think pr- private organizations can, can learn from how public organizations are structured and, and, and vice versa. Public organizations should, should have competition. Should, the, you know, customers should have the ability to, to choose between di- different options, which forces you know, people to, to be at their best. Totally. And Eric, so you mentioned you know, the government should be willing to take the risk, willing to be the customer, and, and a few other things. On that topic, what would a pro-startup agenda, policy agenda look like a, a pro startup agenda would would have a couple a couple items so, so one is we need either less regulation or more um areas of experimentation in areas that have been way too uh you know regulated way too much we, we talked about housing we talked about healthcare we talked about ed- education right the, the, these things prices have skyrocketed whereas in other industries where it hasn't been regulation they've they've decreased significantly oh, you know in the next like decade we might see college cost like a million dollars a year right and it is just you know we're restricting supply and stuff i can get into wh- why it's so expensive but um th- those areas uh, as well as uh, you know, uh, uh, biotechnology, uh, you know, the FDA is way, way too restrictive. I mean, all these three-letter agencies uh, across, you know, sectors, you know, Piotr talks about what we've had innovation in bits and, and non-atoms, and that's because atoms are, are too regulated. And we now finally, we, we've we had so much innovation in bits that now people are coming for the atoms. Like software has eaten, you know, so much uh, of the world already. Now it's coming for the whole thing. And and governments, um, you know, a startup agenda would be would be playing nice with that. Um, would be, you know, letting that happen uh, effectively. Um, another more more broad thing I, I would say in terms of pro startup agenda is um, is an agenda that focused on increasing our population. Um, an increased population, uh, and you can increase population in a few ways uh, you, by either increasing births, <laughs> increasing birth rate, uh, decreasing deaths, or increasing immigration. Um, but when you have more people, you have more. People starting businesses, more people joining businesses, more people being customers, more innovation, uh, and a better economy, and 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 more startups. And and so, the thing that um, you know holds holds that back, you know, immigration. Like, there's a huge opportunity there. I mean, so let me back up for a second. People say, oh, wh- wh- why does population matter? Well, look at China. You know, China has the GDP per capita of Mexico, right? That that that's not very big. It just has so many people. And, and if you look at the power of China, like, why does the NBA, um, you know, bend the knee to China? Why does like Hollywood bend the knee? We could talk about all these organizations that, that bend the knee to China because they've, they've so much power. It's because they have so many people. Right. And, and, and if we could increase uh, our population, you know, the U.S. should be like the, you know, trying to be a draft almost for all the talented people globally. Um, it should have a multi-pronged agenda, whether it's increased immigration, you know, inc- uh, you know, uh, trying to improve the the demographics with, with birth rate, um, and then also, you know, focusing on longevity. I can get into e- each one of those, but those are some some high level thoughts on what a pro startup agenda could look like. No, I I love that, and you know, I think your your point on China is spot on. And I, I wanted to bring this back a little bit. You know, you mentioned my background in Brazil, your background in Colombia. You would expect, uh, given all the things that you said for people, at least here in the US, to embrace economic growth, to think about economic growth and capitalism as a positive thing. And yet, you know, the narrative has shifted quite a bit, especially in the last 10 years. So why is it, in your perspective, that economic growth has become so unpopular? 
economic growth is 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 deeply unintuitive, right? Because we're 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 communists with our families. Like we, you know, everything's equal, we all share. And so we expect that to work at, at scale, right? Um, it, it's tough to explain to, to someone making eight dollars an hour why the minimum wage like won't help them. And the real answer is they'll probably be unemployed, right? It's it's tough to explain compounding returns. Like we've evolved for a zero-sum world that Malthus predicted would continue, and we still haven't internalized. That the economy is is positive sum, and and what's interesting is that Malthus was actually like a correct historian. Like you know, in his era, like more people did mean fewer resources, more did mean higher incomes, right? And what happened with the industrial revolution is that we figured out how to get income and population growing in tandem, thanks to productivity growth. And and then what happened, you know, a few decades ago is that we also figured out how to get economic growth and resource usage decoupled. Uh, more from less, as uh, Andrew McAfee, um, you know, the title of his book, he calls the process dematerialization. And so people haven't kind of like understood that economic growth ma- makes them all, all people will sort of laugh, like trickle down, like trickle down. Oh, that, that that's not real. But no, it's actually it's actually real. <laughs> like our standard of living is, in, you know, orders of magnitude better than, than than it used to be. We've gotten so many people out of poverty that that's because of of economic growth. And then for the people who say, oh, but it's bad for the planet. Not anymore. We, we figured out how, how, how to decouple it. And the only way to a better planet is through technolo- technological innovation. And that, that, that comes from, from more people and, and more economic growth. That's uh, a very uh, solar punk response, Eric, which we, which we love, right? Like thinking about how, how is this going to work in uh, uh, pushing the earth and our planet forward in a positive way, yet also encouraging that growth. You know, we, we've heard a lot of talk about the decadence of uh, our institutions. In your mind, what is driving that? Um, and is the decadence related to economic growth at all? So it, it's a few things that, that we can put together here. One is the talent gap that, that we, we talked about. Talent is, are going to startups. And, and so that means that kind of the, the rest of the institutions, you know, academia, media, go- government, uh, others, um, which have had, you know, like decreased approval ratings for for quite some time, they're just getting not, not they're not getting the best and the brightest in, in the way that they used to because the incentives aren't there for them to be able to innovate freely or or profit or, or have as big of an impact. Frank, frankly, so so one is the talent gap. Two is they're just more transparency, right? Like, and so the question is, is it that they're getting worse or or just we didn't have we didn't know how bad it was, right? Take public schools, are they better today than they were fifty years ago? Maybe, or they're just maybe they're just as bad, and we just didn't realize it due to lack of transparency and context back then. Uh, th- then there's just the matter of the, like, as I talked about earlier, industries that like don't ha- have accountability, they just they just get more bureaucratic and sclerotic as, as, as they as, as they get older. And, and part of it is that like, you know, the internet has has changed uh, has changed a lot. And, and biology puts it: no institution that precedes the internet will 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 survive the internet. And so those are just a handful of reasons why um, why institutions haven't been able to keep up. Oh and, oh, and you also asked about economic growth. Well, yeah, Eric Weinstein has this concept of embedded growth obligations, where certain institutions just expected to be able to receive, uh, you know, have certain budgets based on our, based on our growth rate. And what happens when that growth rate uh, isn't the same growth rate as it used to be? Well, um, now things become more zero sum. And what happens when things become zero sum? You start to fight over the scraps. And so, so Eric, I think this is a perfect setup uh, for something else that Ian and I have talked quite a bit in the podcast, which is uh, the rise of nihilism. You know, if I hear the things that you're saying, which is, uh, you know, people do not understand economic growth, 
uh, and then on the other side, you have the decadence of the institutions. Does that, you know, like, <laughs> does the sum of those two things just equal nihilism? Like, it, it, like is that how those factors interact? Is, is it almost an equation? Well, it, it's fascinating because you can think of nihilism in, in two ways. You can think of nihilism in the world is going to go to shit and I am just going to like play video games and not care or whatever, or, or just like, um, you know, do meme stonks or, <laughs> or, or whatever it is. And, and there's definitely some of that. Um, but then there's also nihilism in the sense of like, the world is going to shit and I'm going to like riot in the streets, right? I'm, I'm going to like dedicate my life to, to changing this, to change, changing the world. And so, and I, I'm, you know, much more concerned about the second kind because the first kind, you know, that, that's sad, but uh, they're not going to get in your way. <laughs> the, 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 the second kind is actively um, preventing, uh, preventing growth, preventing innovation, you know, and, and, and we have a lot of these people and it's a similar ideology to the Unabomber, right? Like humanity is bad. Humans are bad. Humans impact on the world is bad. And you shouldn't have children because humans are bad for the planet. You know, Ezra Klein yesterday in his, uh, in his article and, and good on him, he was encouraging people to have children, but he said that the question he receives the most in his, you know, social milieu. And he's like, you know, uh, an elite is, um, should I have kids? given that there's a climate crisis and I don't want them to experience a climate crisis or contribute to the climate crisis. Like the fact that we have incredibly intelligent people, you know, that's the most common question he, he gets asked. Asking that is, 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 is scary. And, and it's, it's not because, you know, I think nihilism is the wrong word because it's not because they don't care. It's because they have a um, incorrect understanding of, of the world. I, I don't know you guys, but when I was growing up, everyone was worried about overpopulation. You know, there was a population bomb, this book that came up and then, and then, you know, Bill Gates was working on some stuff. And, and it was only recently that we realized, oh, the problem is actually uh, underpopulation. And, and so people have a flawed narrative around that. They have a flawed narrative around um, nature, right? They, they, they think that we need to go back to this like glorious garden of Eden, right? But um, we don't live in nature as we understood it centuries ago, right? Nature is, you know, have your average lifespan of 30 and like you're five or six kids die at childbirth or whatever. Like nature is trying to kill you, right? Like you can't live in New York, like the New York we, we know and love. Like that's just not natural. And I'm not even talking about the buildings. I'm talking about like they have brutal winters, right? Without technology, living in places like New York would, would be miserable. So when people talk about nature, they're talking about this like magical, you know, fantasy land of nature, like nature without lions roaming or, or nature that's like somehow has medicine or fa yeah, internet connection or like a warm bed. And so what, 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 the, what I, call, I call them Luddites, what, what they fail to, to realize is that, you know, humans are naturally a technological species. Like we build tools to make our lives better, right? Um, and so you know, biology has this framework called the, the tech, techno progressives and techno conservatives. It says techno progressives look at the world and ask, how can we improve faster? How can we, you know, afford, I mean, create uh, nuclear power, you know, genetic modification, space travel, internet, like all the stuff that you guys talk, talk about on the show and, and techno conservatives, they say, how do we delay it? Uh, you know, how do we, uh, how do we almost reverse the technology growth and live how we used to live? And, and the simple fact that people have to realize is that, you know, that may have worked for a world of 10 million people, but it's not going to fit a world of 8 billion people. And we can't tell the rest of the world, like, Hey, you know, we have had all these nice things. You can't have these nice things now. And so the only way out is through. <laughs> and, and, and thankfully we've decoupled re resource usage um, so that we can, so that we're, we're all aligned here. Um, but to, to put a pin on it, nylon is, 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 is the wrong word because the people who are the problem are the people who care so much 
that they're getting in the way of, of growth, even at their own expense. So how do we course correct this, right? This sounds like a large systemic problem. Is this done at a low level, at a high level? Like, How do we even begin to uh, help fix this? By telling our story, t- t- telling the story by arguing, right? And I think you know one of the um, one of the pros and cons of of the startup world in the past, you know, startup startup culture, right? It was really kind of like you, you go back to like you know Paul Graham, YC, like don't you know just focus on your customers, just focus on customers, that kind of thing. I think what we realized um, like too late, perhaps, is that we also need to to, to that being a full stack startup is also owning your distribution, is also owning your media, is also in in some ways in the future, like owning your governance potentially too. But like we let other people tell the story for us and they told uh, an incorrect story that cast us as the victim, as the, as the oppressors and, and made tech um, the whipping boy, right? Why are people so negative on tech? Because the, the you know, partially um, because they, they, you know, have had incorrect stories told by the media. And so when you say what what needs to what needs to change, we need to invest in storytelling, in capturing hearts and minds, in the same way that we do on building incredible products, and and we're starting to do that. There, there, you know, um, you see, you know, Balaji is pushing a lot like transhumanist stuff. Like he's really f- focused on you know on, on, on that narrative. You see, Solana, Mike Solana, right, like focusing on a better SF or like a more inspiring um, America, more inspiring nationalism. You see Patrick Carlson and Tyler Cowen with progress studies, right, trying to popularize economic growth by, you know, educating people on, on how it's the best thing to, to reduce poverty. So, so it's, it's bottoms up in terms of storytelling. And then it's also top tops down in terms of some of the policy things we were talking about earlier in terms of, uh, in terms of, Hey, we, we need more people to solve this, whether it's immigration or, or focusing on uh, our birth rate, et cetera. So in the vein of fixing things, Eric, tomorrow news for you, you wake up, you're president of the United States. What's the first thing that you're going to do to take action on what you just stated. Yeah. Well, let, let me focus on immigration here for a second, because immigrants are one third of America's Nobel Prize winners. They're 50% of America's billion dollar startups. And like high immigration, high skilled immigration is like a trillion dollar check lying on the ground, right? The number of successful companies, which we establish is, is going to help solve some of our crucial problems is just limited by talent and, and capital, but talent is one of the, the big limiters. And, and this has been our superpower. Like we have, the, you know, universities have for decades gotten the best people in the world. Our companies have gotten the best people in the world. Like how many, you know, Indian CEOs are there? Like a lot, right? <laughs> um, and so um, we need um, more people. Um, and we, we need, uh, so I, I would highly focus, like change our tune on immigration. This has been a Trump and Biden thing, by the way, they've both been, you know, it, it's been a, uh, what's it called horseshoe theory, like the left and the right at this point, like, um, you know, they, they work for the wrong reasons. They, they, they worry about, um, it, it, you know, immigration and, and it's, it's not just by the way that we need more people. It's that we also need more younger people because younger people, um, not to be ageist, I'm just saying generalizing, they, they, you know, relative to boomers, relative to you know people retiring, they start more businesses, they buy more stuff, and that subsidizes older people who aren't producing or spending. And one problem we have, and as a global problem, is that our demographics are out of whack. Like China's one-child policy, they now have a three-child policy. They're trying, they're trying to correct for that. And and the number one thing by far that's keeping U.S. average working age low population is immigration, um, especially Hispanic Hispanic immigration. 
Um, and, and you see what happens to, to countries where the demographics get out of whack, like Russia's demographic is really out of whack. And, you know, Peter Zehan predicted a few years ago that they were going to have to invade Ukraine and invade other, other sort of nearby area regions because they just need more people. They, they need more resources. And if you think about how bad the culture war is now in, in, in let's say in America, like imagine how bad it would be with, with even worse, you know, ec- economic growth, uh, or even, you know, a, a, a more diminishing, diminishing pie than, than we, without, a, than rather than having a growing pie. So I, I did deeply focus on, on immigration in terms of focusing on, on the birth rate. I think that's interesting. I mean, I think, I think there's a few things that could be done there. One is, um, you know, there's fertility startups, like we invested in Orchid, you know, a, a carrot fertility on the benefit side. So there, there's fertility technology, there's, there's childcare, um, startups, we invested in tiny care. Um, we invested in Primer, which is a homeschool company. There's housing companies. We invested in Constrafor, a construction startup, houseable on, on the housing side, because if people are able to afford a house, that means they're more likely to, to have kids. There's upskilling. Like there's, there's a whole set of, of reasons why people are having less and less kids. And I think both startups and policies can, can help address that. But also a culture that understands, that isn't asking the questions that Ezra Klein's friends are asking a culture that that realizes that that the way to have impact in the world, um, or one of them, uh, is to is to have children that that go out and make an impact. And I'm glad you know Lucas, Ian, and myself have have agreed to have seven kids each. I'm I'm really glad. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, I, I was I signed I signed up for nine, so you know exactly. there we go. <laughs> exactly. So Eric, we're, we're talking a lot about policymaking, government, and how all of those things relate to startups. What is your perspective on how politics and ideology in Silicon Valley, you know, and let's say Silicon Valley, the the actual physical location, but also broadly has evolved over time? I think that we now have a renewed appreciation for how important politics is. Like people, you know, it's fascinating, right? Like the media narrative on tech, um, and I was talking about the tech lash, and, and one way of saying framing the tech lash, by the way, is, is saying that it was actually just media versus tech, but it was actually never, it was like the Rotten Tomatoes phenomenon, right? Where like Dave Chappelle gets like 99%, you know, approval rating by the fans, but the, the critics hate it and, or, or Fauci, the, the reverse, the, you know, critics love it, but the fans hate it. And, and similarly, like startups have been popular. It was, it was Facebook, it was DoorDash, it was like Amazon, people, like they're way more popular than these other institutions, right? But they kind of let themselves, they didn't fight back. And then we realized that like by apologizing all the time, we're actually like being painted as the enemy and, and we're, we're not the enemy. Like, you know, we have responsibility of course. And, and, but like we are choosing the wrong strategic direction and choosing the wrong moral direction. And so we've built a kind of like uh, immunity or, 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 or a, a change in narrative or a vibe shift um, where tech is now standing up for itself. And in one, one of these places where you see this is San Francisco. Right. So, and going back to the narrative, the narrative at first on the tech lash was they're they're making all these toys that you know all these stupid apps, right? Like when I was a product and I was like all these silly apps, all etc. Not making a big impact. They think they're doing you know something, but they're not, etc. Then the narrative t- changed to oh, they're ruining the world. Like they're the, the reason why democracy is is over, right? So it, so it changed in a second. And similarly, like you see that in San Francisco, right? So if you say hey, if tech is so powerful, why can't it swing? you know, city council elections that are decided by like a few hundred votes to protect their own narrow interests, right? Like it's incredible. Like we can build SpaceX, but we can't like win an election in a, you know, that just need, can't get a few hundred people to go out to vote. And so I think that's changing. Like you see Gary Tan, you see Solana, you see a lot of people are saying, Hey, we need to be more active 
in areas other than startups. Like Nadia Asparova has this um, has this framework of Davos man, startup man, and crypto man. And and Davos man, you know, tried to spread liberal democracy around the world. Startup man is trying to pre- pre- present the founder mindset. And and you, you know, I'm I'm in there. Like I, we've talked about why startups are are great, but startups are not the only thing. Like ideas matter. And 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 startups are we're starting to realize that um, that ideas. Are, are really important. And you, you see people getting more active in, in media, right? Like we're starting to tell our stories, like not just Solana and like we also, Ben Thompson and Pac, like we're doing tech native analysis. You see it happening in government, right? On both sides, like Peter Thiel is now running these candidates, right? Like uh, on, on the other side, like Reid Hoffman is getting, is really involved. Uh, you know, SBF is, is, is really involved. Um, you know, on academia side, like, you know, Patrick Carlson um, just launched a new research institute, right? And we're seeing startups like, you know, Lambda and Multiverse and OnDeck, like try to try, try to get involved there. And, and, and then these like movements that I talked about earlier, progress studies, transhumanism, transhumanism. And so what we've learned is that we can't just sit on the sidelines. Like we have to get involved. I, I love that. And I guess, so you've done a ton of thinking around education, so I, I, you know, I, I, this is actually a topic that we have not really covered on Solarpunk so far, but, you know, given how much you've thought about education, how much do you think that the issues that we've discussed actually relate to, ed- to education somehow? And, you know, is your view that we actually have an educational crisis in, in America? You, you, we have we have to admit that we have an ed- education crisis uh, in, in this country. Like on on any axis that you look at it, if we go through K through twelve test scores, earning potential, employment rates, uh, student satisfaction, teacher salaries have over the last twenty years stayed flat, and 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 college tuition revenues and student debt have have skyrocketed. We have a trillion dollar student debt loan. We're, we're not training people for, for the jobs that they need. We're not filtering people for, for companies and, anymore. And, and we're eliminating competition on, on both the K-12 side and, 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 um, and, and the higher education side. And so the, the, the public school teachers have an NPS of negative 17%. Um, you know, 10, teachers say 10% of other teachers are unsatisfactory educators. Uh, 55% of Americans think that K-12 is heading down the, the wrong track. So what do we what do we do about that? Well, we do what what, what you know it's time to build. <laughs> and so you know we at Village, right? We've invested at every level of the stack in terms of you know from childcare, tiny care, right, uh, homeschool, uh, primer, um, high school, Soros schools, you know, co- college, uh, you know, and apprenticeships, a multiverse on deck. Like we need to if 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 if, if the government is not going to create, um, you know, their own competition. We need, we need to do it outside the system and create such a a better product that's going to, you know, encourage public schools to 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 improve. So 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 yes, there is a crisis, but yes, there also is a flurry of people who are acknowledging that, um, you know, human capital is is what makes this country is what's going to make this country work. Um, and so they're they're building in that area as well. So as we solve those problems um, with technology and great companies, like you mentioned, if we fast forward five or 10 years and let's say the government starts to take notice, um, how do you see that evolving? Is it a collaboration between these companies and the government? Is more privatization of education? What's your hope of how this evolves over time? My hope is that uh, they work together in the ways that we were describing earlier. They, that they set a level playing field. Like, you know, I don't want like Trump University to exist, right? Like, I don't want just anyone to go create a, a university. I, I want a, uh, you know, I want some accreditation, but I don't want, want it to be a cartel, 
Um, I want people, you know, I want, if you want to go out and create a K through 12, you know, high school or, or create a, you know, a higher education, uh, create a college that, that tries to compete with Harvard. I, I want you to be able to do that because that's going to make our product better. I, I want us to start, stop restricting supply while subsidizing demand. Why are we encouraging people to, to take these loans? Um, you know, the average person has like $30,000 in debt and, you know, half the country doesn't even have $2,000 of, of disposal income, right? And you can't even charge that debt in, in bankruptcy, right? And so ISAs could be one model that, that are more uh, aligning between students and, and, and colleges. ISAs have their, have their own their own challenges. But we, we across the board, we have to stop restricting supply um, and subsidizing demand. And, and then we have to do what we were talking about earlier, which is create a level playing field, be a funder, right? Like, you know, Race the Top was, was one uh, sort of initiative in K-12, but there, there could be others that give capital to, to the best ones that, or that act like VCs almost. Um, and then also, um, you know, be a, be a, be a buyer when, when, when helpful and, 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 and when makes a difference. Love it. And Eric, so putting together all of those threads, you know, if, if you're a listener, if you're someone that cares about the future of America and America values, what do you recommend them to do? You know, what's the, what's the call to action uh, coming out of this conversation? There's a few ways I'd look at that, that question. Uh, one is that, um, you know, one critique of, of our culture is that we've become too, too pessimistic, right? You know, Peter Thiel has a couple of examples, right? Of like, you know, Nixon declared war on cancer in 1970 and said we would defeat cancer in 1976. Or, and so today, you know, we wouldn't even declare war on Alzheimer's, like even though, um, you know, one third of 85 year olds suffer from it. You know, in infrastructure, you, you, Golden Gate Bridge was built in three and a half years in 1930 right? In, in 1930s. Today, it takes seven years to, to build an access road that costs more than the original bridge. And we, we just expect across the board, we're expecting less than our governments uh, than ever before. And, and you see it's really played out by, by sci-fi, right? Like all the sci-fi is dystopian. Like where we have black mirror, where's the white mirror, right? And so we were talking about telling our stories earlier. So reinvesting in, in optimism as a, as, 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 as a fundamental um, narrative. And then also you say about like, you know, one thing that's really interesting, you talk about a lot on your podcasts, is you kind of take it as an assumption and a given that American values mean something that everyone agrees on. Say, okay, how can you know companies do more to spread American values? Whereas, and if you say, hey, like, what can someone who wants to do like spread American values? What can they do? Well, first, they should codify what those values are because I, I don't think that they're given. I think that we're still fighting for them in this country. Like, is free speech an American value? Right? Like, that seems really up for debate in in the last last month or two with Elon and Twitter. Like, are free markets uh, American value? Well, that that seems really like uh, up for up for debate. Like, when you say American values, like, be specific as to what exactly you're spreading, and then realize that there are battles in this country for, for what those mean and, and, and learn the different sides, get, get involved, uh, like pay attention to, uh, ideas that that's one big takeaway is that startups, um, you know, it's time to build, but it's also time to learn. <laughs> it's also like time to understand, um, that I, I, you know, Nadia has this great blog post called idea machines that every, everyone should, should, should read that, you know, the reason why you're working on a startup in the first place is because you read, you know, you heard Paul Graham or you heard Patrick Carlson, or you heard, you know, whatever. And we need more of those people who inspire people to, to do new things. What, what, like who's the Paul Graham of climate? 
Who's the Paul Graham of nuclear power? Who's the Paul Graham of X, Y, Z? We need kind of these, these leaders to, um, to inspire more, more people. Just like this is how we started the podcast, right? Like you can either solve cancer or help other people you know, solve cancer. You can either save, save the world or you know, improve the infrastructure by which other people can, can, can go do that. And ideas are part of the infrastructure to go do that. Totally. And on your point about optimism versus pessimism, on top of all of the challenges, what is it that keeps you, that, that keeps you optimistic that, that we're going to be able to overcome them? I think one thing that keeps me so optimistic is that the values of, of technology, um, you know, we say Silicon Valley as a space, but right now it's a mindset because it's, it's expanded far out beyond Silicon Valley. They're starting to get exported to, to the rest of the country and, and also globally. And, and what are those values? Well, th there's a few of them. One is that um, people help each other out without asking for anything in return. It, it's a shared upside culture, right? Like, um, you know, skin in the game, people invest in each other. People don't want to miss the next big thing. Th that's really big. We were talking earlier about how to make uh, economic growth more popular. One way is, is by, you know, the progress studies work, education. Another way is let's just give people more uh, equity, right? And that's why Web3, right? It gives people more upside. Like, that's why people love, like all these socialists love Web3, right? It's like, because they get rich, right? Like, so it's, it's, it's really funny. Like, what if, you know, the US has been, you know, gave experiments with UBI. What if instead of it was UBI, what if it was instead like, you know, stocks in the S&P 500? And, and that way you'd be like rooting for Amazon, rooting for Facebook, rooting for these companies because you'd be aligned with them. So, so more you know, equity alignment, I feel like is a Silicon Valley value that is now being exported in, in, into the world. And, and that's a positive sum, uh, positive sum view. Whereas like in Hollywood, you don't have that, right? Hollywood, there's a certain number of movies that get made each year, certain number of roles for people to fill them. So there's opportunity cost, but there's no opportunity cost in, in startup. Uh, sorry, there's no natural rate limiter in, in startups. It's just the amount of capital, the amount of talent, the amount of ideas and, and more and more people getting exported to that means there's going to be, there's going to be much, much more of that. And so that, that is one thing that, 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 that has me optimistic. And, and the fact that, you know, what COVID enabled the past two years is, is more um, remote. So we finally decoupled where, where you work from, from where you live, which means, you know, people um, all over the world are, are getting access to that. And let me, let me close on, on this one idea, which is, you know, um, we were talking about, you know, organizing the world's ambition. I'm excited about this idea that, you know, Uber and Airbnb are marketplaces that figured out how to utilize an idle asset right? Airbnb turns spare bedroom into cash. Uber turns your car into cash. But the most valuable asset in the world that's underutilized, that's an idle asset, isn't cars or bedrooms, it's people. There are billions of people whose talents are underutilized. These are people with the same IQ, same potential, getting paid 100x more because of where they live. And, and, and so seeing that opportunity being spread globally uh, is, is what gets me really excited. Wow, Eric, that is uh, what a amazing outlook on the world. And I think something that inspires definitely myself and I'm sure Lucas and honestly, I think the entire village team. So thank you for sharing uh, that outlook. I absolutely love it. Thank you so much, Eric. Thank you. It's been a great episode. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.